Beginning to read at verse 18. Matthew 1, verse 18. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give his name, him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord has spoken through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Give you a bit of history now, if you can cope with it. I'm sure you can. In the middle of the fourth century, the Bishop of um, Jerusalem wrote to the Bishop of Rome and asked him this question. I would like for you to ascertain the date of the birth of Christ so that we could establish a date and have a celebration annually. The Bishop of Rome wrote back to the Bishop of Jerusalem that Christ was born on December the 25th. And by the end of the fourth century, this had become the accepted custom so that every December the 25th, we focus on the birth of Christ. Now, Bible scholars know there is absolutely no evidence that Jesus was born on the 25th of December. In fact, there's some evidence to suggest or prove that he wasn't born on the 25th of December. So why did the Bishop of Rome do this? Well, December was the major month in pagan celebrations. It was the month of all their festivals and feasts and all kind of pageants the pagans did to honor their gods of winter. And by December the 25th, it seemed to reach the high point of the festivals. So the Bishop of Rome chose that day, that date, for Christians to celebrate Christmas, the birth of Jesus. Now some people, and I've heard it said many times, say that as Christians we shouldn't celebrate Christmas at all because we're celebrating a pagan festival. I want to say I disagree strongly with that on two counts. First of all, on December the 25th, tomorrow, I'm going to be celebrating the birth of God's son, Jesus Christ. I'm not celebrating a pagan festival. 
And so to me, that has nothing to do with pagan festivals. But secondly, I think those early church fathers showed a lot of wisdom. I'd even go so far as to say inspired wisdom in choosing the 25th of December, the time when the pagans were all involved in their festivals for a Christian celebration. Because the new Christians then, instead of being drawn into those pagan festivals, had a Christian celebration to focus on. And the early church fathers did that in other ways too. At Halloween, they uh, brought out All Hallows' Eve and then All Saints' Day on the Sunday. So that, uh, again, Christians could focus not on the pagan festival of Halloween, but upon Christian celebrations instead. And if I may say so, I know a lot of Christians today who could do with a refocus at Halloween on the Christian celebrations, but we'll not go there this morning. So we could say that the Bishop of Rome gave us Christmas on the 25th of December. Now, one of the common customs among the Romans uh, was called Saturnalia. It ran from December the 17th to the 24th, and it was all about giving gifts to one another. And some people say that that's where the idea of giving gifts at Christmas came from. So some say that we could give the Romans a credit and say they gave us the idea of giving presents at Christmas. Now, of course, that's ignoring the fact that the wise men predated them by quite a long time. So for me, it's the wise men who showed that giving gifts at the birth of Christ was the important thing. And then if we move on quite a way uh, in time, we come to the Reformation and a man called Martin Luther who led the Reformation. He brought in the modern idea of the Christmas tree. He brought a fir tree into his house and put candles on it to remind him of the stars over the forest. So we could say that Martin Luther gave us the modern idea of decorating Christmas trees in our homes. And then finally, there's the Christmas card. A man called Henry Cole, in 1846, he owned an art shop in London, had the idea of printing Christmas cards as a money-making enterprise. And so today, Christmas cards, we could say, were given to us by Sir Henry Cole. But let's think about that for a moment. Isaiah 9.6 says this, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. The greatest 
Christmas gift of all wasn't given to us by the Bishop of Rome or Martin Luther or Sir Henry Cole. The greatest gift of Christmas was given by God himself through in Jesus Christ. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given. I want to say three simple things uh, this morning. In giving us his son, God gave us a savior. Matthew 1.21 that I read to you. You are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. The name Jesus was a common name in the time that Jesus was born. That's why very often you see the New Testament referring to Jesus as Jesus of Nazareth to distinguish him from other people with that name. But from the moment of Jesus' birth, the name Jesus would carry a special significance. Joseph and Mary didn't choose the name of Jesus, you'll notice. It was commanded from heaven. So why was it important that the Messiah, Jesus, was given that special name? Well, you'll be aware, I'm sure, that the Greek form of Jesus is Joshua. Hebrew word Joshua is translated into the Greek um, Jesus. And, uh, of course, in the Old Testament, Joshua was a great Israelite leader. But Joshua wasn't given the name Joshua by his parents. He was called Hosea. They called him that, and it means, oh, save. But in Numbers 13, 16, Moses changed his name from Hosea, mean, oh, save, to Joshua, which means God is salvation. The Hebrew word Yahweh, God is salvation, or God saves. When the Israelites came to the Red Sea, they were trapped, the sea in front of them, the Egyptian army advancing behind them, and they cried out to God for help. Moses told them, and this is in Exodus 14.30, Fear not, stand still, and see the salvation of God that he will work for you today. God's salvation made a way where there was no way. Now, I want you to hold that thought. I'll come back to it in a moment. Let's go back to Joshua. Joshua is famous not for leading the people of Israel out of Egypt. Moses did that. But for leading them into the promised land. Fulfilling God's plan of salvation for them. So hold that thought too. Now, the Bible tells us that all humanity is held in the bondage of sin and its consequences. In John 8.34, Jesus tells the unbelieving Pharisees, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. Like Israel of old, we are trapped 
in sin. No way back, no way forward, no way out. So God sent Jesus to be our savior, to deliver us from the consequences and power of sin and lead us into life eternal, into heaven itself. That's why Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Acts 4.12 says, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Romans 10.13, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. You'll note in those last two scriptures, it talks about the name. The name is Jesus. Everyone who calls on the name. Everyone, salvation is found only in the name of Jesus. No other name. There's no other name like Jesus, for he is our savior. And it says in Philippians 2.9 that it's the greatest name. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. Salvation is through Jesus Christ. He died on the cross to atone for the sins of the world. As the old hymn says, there was no other good enough to pay the price of sin. He only could unlock the gates of heaven and let us in. At Christmas, God gave us a savior. Secondly, I want to say this. At Christmas, God gave us Emmanuel. Matthew one twenty two: Behold, a virgin shall be with child, and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. Now, according to the Marmalade Trust, there's been a lot of research done into the effect of loneliness, both on our mental and physical health. It's seen as one of the biggest health concerns of today. It said in the report that loneliness has been linked to early death, an increased risk of heart disease, stroke, depression, cognitive decline, and poor sleep. Age Concern did some research into loneliness, and they found that 1.3 million older people will feel lonely this Christmas. We were created to be social people. We need each other. We need to interact. We need company, fellowship, social interaction. I want to say too, not only that, we were created to live in relationship with God. And when we're separated from him, we suffer too. Blaise Pascal wrote of an infinite abyss in each person that can only be filled by an infinite immutable object, that is to say, 
God. At Christmas, God gave us Jesus Christ to be our Savior. And when we put our faith in him, he becomes the center of our lives. God with us. Consider these verses. Colossians 1.27 Christ in you, the hope of glory. Ephesians 3.17 So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Galatians 2.20 Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. John 17, Jesus was praying and said, I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me. J.M. Minnix quotes from Bob George's book, Classic Christianity. And Bob George tells this story. I'll read it. A small boy, not quite three years old, skipped down the imposing corridors of the White House in Washington. Armed servicemen took no notice of the child who ran past their assigned posts. The boy passed several staff members on his way, who likewise took little notice, except for an occasional smile. Passing a secretary's desk, the little boy did not acknowledge her wave, intent as he was on his goal. In front of the door stood another armed sentry, but the guard made no movement to hinder the progress of the child, who opened the door and went inside. With a grin, the boy ran across the carpet of the Oval office and climbed into the lap of the most powerful man in the world. Influential cabinet members had to wait to continue their discussion with President John F. Kennedy as his son John and he exchanged good morning hugs and kisses. No one would dare stop the boy because he was the son of the president. Minix goes on to, after quoting that, to say, likewise we belong to Jesus. He dwells in us. We are his beloved. The greatest angels in heaven simply stand back when we enter the throne room of the Lord because we belong to him. At Christmas, God gave us Emmanuel, God with us, so that we might never be separated from him. And finally, at Christmas, God gave us wonderful opportunities. At that first Christmas, many people had wonderful opportunities to have an encounter with the Son of God. Some took hold of those opportunities. Others did not. Choices were made, which brought joy to some, but fear and anxiety to others. The shepherds in the field had the revelation of the birth of Jesus. They heard the message. But when the angels departed, they said, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord 
has told us about. They took their opportunity. The wise men had the revelation of the star. In Matthew 2, they said, we saw his star when it rose. Their response was, we have come to worship him. The innkeeper, he was busy caring for his guests. He wasn't hostile. He wasn't unloving. He wasn't unsympathetic. He wasn't anything other than indifferent. He was busy. The one through whom all things were created was being born on his premises. And all he could assign for that miracle was a stable. He missed the opportunity for the great encounter with the coming of the Son of God. Then there was Herod. King Herod liked to be called Herod the Great. The wise men went to him because they thought that the new king would be born in a palace. Herod missed the opportunity because of fear. Fear of what this newborn king might cost him. Then there was the religious leaders. Matthew tell us that, tells us that Herod gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people. He inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. One commentator says, he went to the experts for answers. He consulted with the theologians, the professors, the academics, the religious elite of Israel. The religious leaders missed their opportunity because they were indifferent. They had all the facts, but they didn't care. They knew the theology, but they weren't interested in experiencing Christ for themselves. Today at Christmas time, there are many reminders, reminders everywhere of the birth of Jesus Christ. There are carols being sung, even in the shops as you shop, and you might even hear, or oh, come, all ye faithful, joyful and triumphant. And you might hear that carol go on to say, Come and adore him, born the King of Angels. Though getting fewer, you might even get a Christmas card with the picture of a nativity scene on the front and a Christian message or verse inside. You might see a church service on TV over Christmas and hear choirs singing carols or hear Bible readings of the birth of Jesus. Some will respond to these opportunities, like the shepherd and the wise men, and find the joy of knowing Jesus. Others like the innkeeper and Herod and the religious elite might be just too busy or too involved in their own affairs, or too indifferent to take those opportunities. How will you respond this Christmas to the revelation of the birth of Jesus Christ? I want to close with a, a poem um, called Can This Be Christmas by Emma uh, Dehan. Um, just listen to it. 
What's all this hectic rush and worry? Why go these crowds who run and curry? Why all the lights, the Christmas trees, the jolly fat man? Tell me, please. Why don't you know this is the day for parties and for fun and play? Why this is Christmas? So this is Christmas, do you say? But where is Christ this Christmas day? Has he been lost among the throng, his voice drowned out by empty song? No, he's not here. You'll find him where some humble soul now kneels in prayer who knows the Christ of Christmas. But see the many aimless thousands who gather on this Christmas day whose hearts have never yet been opened or said to him, come in and stay. In countless homes, the candles burning, in countless hearts, expectant yearning for gifts and presents, food and fun and laughter till the day is done. But not a tear of grief or sorrow for him so poor he had to borrow a crib a colt, a boat, a bed, where he could lay his weary head. I'm tired of all this empty celebration of feasting, drinking, recreation. I'll go instead to Calvary, and there I'll kneel with those who know the meaning of that manger low and find the Christ this Christmas. I want to just say, it's not wrong to celebrate Christmas, to rejoice, have a meal with family and friends and all the things that are part of Christmas, as long as Christ is the center of it all. For life and joy and peace and wonder comes from Jesus and knowing him.